City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Okay, City Limits, it's the, um, it's the fourth Wednesday of the month, and fourth Wednesday, we're going to have Helen Vandenberg on this morning, who we know is a, a, regular, a regular on this program. She's a long-term activist out in the north and western suburbs of Melbourne and all sorts of things, and today she's going to talk to us about Parks Victoria and the Environment Protection Authority, the EPA, and I suspect she's not going to be kind to either, but we'll find out a little later, because we're going to go to her pretty early in the show, because we've also got... A couple of guests in the homelessness issue, Meg, uh, coming on as well. That's right. Um, a peer support worker and um, the project lead about a project that's a peer-to-peer educator project for people who are sleeping rough. Okay, and I haven't mentioned your Meg uh, Kimber. I'm Kevin Healy. Karina's pressing the buttons. And uh, I thought we'd just kick off today. We're going to have a very short um, chat up front today because we're going to get Helen on the line very shortly, or she's actually already on the line. She can join us in if she join in this if she wants to. But the Herald Sun's done it again uh, this week with uh, exclusive unions, 40% pay rise demand for Key Road. Highway robberies, the big front page lead. And construction companies bidding to build the 16 billion Northeast Link have been hit with union demands for 40% pay rises across the life of the project. The extraordinary cash grab as the nation's economy reels from the coronavirus shutdowns is detailed in a secret memorandum approved earlier this week and obtained by the Herald Sun. The bosses of the CFWMEU and its allies in the electrical and plumbing unions presented the document to the consortiums bidding to build the link, demanding wage increases of 4% or 5% every year between 2021 and 2028. So it's actually 4% a year they're asking for. Uh, and of course, at the start of negotiations, you go, you know, everyone knows you, you put up your highest and it gets, gets negotiated. But anyway, it's highway robbery. It's a cash grab by the bosses. But the people building the thing, of course, never have cash grabs in, in their terms. So that's that's good to know, isn't it? Yeah. And, and I mean, um, asking for this during the coronavirus crisis, actually, yeah, people asking for like wages during coronavirus when, yeah, they're stealing money from the project, obviously, right? Looks that way to me. It looks that way to me, Meg. And uh, mm-hmm. I mean, and we've seen, of course, with this um, sixty billion mistake they made last week, uh, they still won't pay those poor those people who are out there in dole queues and uh, and mostly food queues because they've got no money coming in, whatever. But uh, mm. anyway, that's the that's the way it goes. Uh, one of the interesting items this week um, comes out of. Um, it was actually in the um, Lancet Planetary Health, but it's the ANU and the University of Technology, Sydney, and they claim that climate change would be listed as a cause of death on death certificates under their proposals, and they say the tally of deaths due to excessive heat in the past 11 years should be 36,000 plus, not the 340 deaths marked on official records, and they say that they go on to say that people who suffer heart conditions or lung conditions and, and die of asthma or whatever 
during heat situations or smoke situations, that should be included in the death certificate. And their, their argument is that that climate change is killing a lot more people than we're officially hearing about or being officially recorded. And of course, the, the response to that came from the usual source, the Institute of Public Affairs, which said it was an example of taxpayer-funded academics inflating figures to push governments to give more climate funding to academics like themselves. But it's a, an interesting argument and uh, one we might pursue at some other time because uh, clearly that they're saying that the, the figures are simply wrong. Mm, that is interesting. That would be good to dig into a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, I reckon so. Uh, did you have anything, by the way, Meg? I'm asking you, you're going to tell me no again, aren't you? That's right, Kevin. Thank you for asking, though. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> just, just in case. <laughs> right, that was a no, I take it. Yeah. Uh, the, the other, the other, um, another item this week in industrial relations, Christian Porter. We know they've been trying to get this ensuring integrity bill through, which allows anyone to smash a union effectively and to have a union official sacked. But they said they're putting it on hold because they want to, they want to be able to have rapport with and work with the union movement uh, as they get the economy back on its feet. So it's only been put on hold, but we see that, uh, as it turns out, though, Morrison, in a speech he's going to give this week, or, uh, has said the bill could be used as part of negotiations on policy reforms with the ACTU. In other words, we'll withdraw that bill altogether if you make massive concessions to the bosses, because what they really want to negotiate about, of course, is that all the all the concessions the unions have given during this coronavirus crisis, they want to maintain. So workers have less pay, less conditions, less holiday pay, less sick leave, and mm. all, the, all the concessions they've made. So mm. uh, interesting, ter interesting term, though, as part of negotiation. So clearly he wants the unions to give things up in return for them saying we won't pass the bill, which will smash unions anyway. Yeah, so either way, they get what they want. Well, they're trying to. Well, that's what they hope anyway. Yeah, yeah. that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and on the Nothing. same thing with Christian Porter, the... Sorry, Helen, you are going to say something? Nothing new in that, Kevin. No, no, nothing new, no. As for the federal government, they had a, a line that they couldn't cross, which was their reason for starving some people. Now the line has shrunk by $60 billion, and they still can't have compassion. So... It's 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 not even compassion. It's just plain fairness and common sense. Mm. Yeah, that's something they lack pretty 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 much, isn't it? Well, we have a third world country here, anyhow. In when you look at how First Nations have been treated, yeah. Now they're adding onto that with the refugees. Now they're adding onto that with the arts community and anybody else that they whose free speech or rights they don't want to look after. Mm. So. It's, it's really a harsh government that is totally indifferent to also the health impacts that come from climate change. So it's an, an attitude in a federal government that says, if you're not wealthy, you don't have rights. Mm. That's right. Now, that's got to be a concern for everybody. And, and related, and in fact, it's related to that and directly following on from that, uh, last week we know uh, well, over a year ago, before the last election, a, a court ruled that casual workers who are in fact full-time workers are entitled to all the entitlements of full-time workers, holiday pay mm -hmm. and those things. 
despite the fact they get a 25% loading, which of course is on a very low pay anyway for those things as, as casuals. But the gov- federal government, the then Minister Kelly O'Dwyer, appear, uh, joined a boss in challenging that in another court case, and that court case came down last week. The government did back the employer, but the court ruled the same way, that these people are entitled to those entitlements. And the uh, it's caused apoplexy with the with the business class, of course. And this week, again, Porter came out and said the judgment was driving uncertainty about employment at the worst time for business, and the government would move to quickly consult with employers and unions on a solution. So he wants to bring unions in to, again, water down what a court ruled against the government in the first place. I would have thought the solution was the ruling last week that they're entitled to those entitlements. Mm. But uh, here we have, as you say, the government again intervening on behalf of employers and wanting to drag the unions in to support their uh, take on workers. It's a bit like when they wanted to abolish slavery, nobody could afford it either. Mm. <laughs> yes. I'm just, well, we haven't poured the tea yet. Let's have a quick, we just, just one second, Helen. We've got to have a pouring of the tea. We're just, oh, no, you're not we haven't done it. Yeah, here we go. Hang on. There we are. Done. That's it. Poor tea poured for the day. Uh, okay, look, but we'll, we should move on, Helen. You see, we, we won't say we've got Helen on the line because he's obviously on the line. But Helen Vandenberg's here to talk about uh, Parks Victoria and uh, later the EPA. But Helen, uh, the issue with Parks Victoria, what's that about? Well, to our surprise, Kevin, a little context. For the last five years, Friends of Steel Creek has been receiving grants from the Port Phillip and Western Port Catchment Management Authority um, to work on a cultural heritage site and adjacent to that site in the Lower Maribyrnong on the Lily Street Escarpment. Uh, a dramatic escarpment that overlooks the confluence of Steel Creek in West Essendon and Avondale Heights. It cuts, it's the border between those two suburbs and the Maribyrnong, the mighty Maribyrnong River, the ancient Maribyrnong River. Um, we've put in 10,500 plants um, as part of the project management team, Wurundjeri Narrap Land Management Team, or Natural Resources Team, the rangers there. Uncle Dave Wandon um, helped us scope the kind of works, what we needed to do and what we would do. Parks Victoria was part of the project team, as is Friends of Steel Creek. So it's been a really collaborative effort on how to begin the restoration of a highly degraded, weed-infested and slightly rabbit-infested area. Uh, And we need the uh, Wurundjeri um, ranges there to act as cultural heritage um, spotters so that if an artefact is unearthed accidentally or has come to the surface because of erosion, they could identify it because we haven't got a clue, right? been a wonderful project. The local communities increased its support. Last year we had 50 volunteers turn up to both planting days and we have two schools, Penley and Essendon Grammar School, the social justice students from that school and the year uh, 11 and 12 and sometimes the year 9 and 10 students from St Bernard's College which is over the road and the staff there have become involved and it's been a really successful project. We always signed an access agreement with Parks Victoria in which, because Friends of Steel Creek has public liability insurance through the land care movement, um, up to $20 million, um, we had to take financial responsibility for the contractors, mainly NARAP, uh, 
and the and any damage they might cause or the volunteers were caught. We're quite happy to sign off on that. They, the land manager, that's their standard. That's fine. We've complied with that. No damage has ever been done. We've only improved the place. Um, it's been something that we've all thoroughly enjoyed. To our surprise, I got a now last year. It was mentioned that uh, there was going to be changes to contractors' conditions. Now, when Parks Victoria is telling you that, you think they're talking about their own contractors. No other, no great clarity in that statement. Uh, even if you ask, there wasn't anything because the local rangers from Parks Victoria, with whom we have a good relationship, didn't know anything. We get a call from the coordinator of volunteers in Parks Victoria, and she tells me that we have to hand over our grant money and our big pardon why. Oh, because we're the land manager, we have to take responsibility for contractors, so we have to pay them. You know, and I'm sort of thinking, you mean that money that, that we get from another government agency, which as a government agency you're not entitled to apply for, you and we accept responsibility for, we are held accountable for, you want to take that off us and manage that for us because you're the land manager. This sounds crazy. Oh, it is. Don't worry. And then suddenly I remembered what had happened to the Friends of the Maribyrnong. They had got a call earlier and I had listened to Judy for one hour one night really upset and they had come... You better tell us who Judy oh. is. Oh, sorry, Helen, you better tell us who Judy is. Yeah. Judy is the grants coordinator and the president of Friends of the Maribyrnong Valley. Now, the short answer to what happened there was that they did hand over the contractor's money, but not the whole grant. Parks, Melbourne Water were pretty upset with the idea that their money given to their group had to go via Parks Victoria. However, there was a compromise reach because they have been on site for 12 years and Judy has said, well, we'll give them the contractor's money this time. The contractor has said, if I knew I was going to have to go and beg for my money at Parks Victoria you know, my, my fees would have been higher because I know how long they take to pay. So they handed it over. And I remember thinking at the time, we're not going to do that. Well, their thing was, we've been on that site for 12 years. They've also been working at the river and up Steel Creek at the confluence area for 12 years. And I thought, well, I don't think Friends of Steel Creek's going to be happy with that. Well, the unanimous decision of our committee and our project team was no deal. We informed Parks Victoria and they were a little astonished. And I rang the funding bodies and the funding bodies said, find yourself another site. We don't want to give the money back. We want you to do environmental work consistent with that, but can you find other locations? And we said, well, of course. So that is what we're doing. We're going to leave the site. Of course, I tried negotiating um, with Parks Victoria. Absolutely no. As a minimum, they want the contractor's money. Now, with our grants, that's the majority of our money. Mm. Now, we pay Wurundjeri promptly. Um, I, I cannot understand why. It seems that Parks Victoria may have a responsibility to go and get co-funding for works on their land. Now, if they want to do that, they can go and ask the government for it. Especially when you have such a strong program that's been going for so long and has such an obvious effect. Just taking your money is very lazy when they could leverage that if they wanted to and apply for more funding. Megan, on top of that, that's create. I said, you're just creating another job in head office of somebody who's going to sit there, look at our papers and any other group, shuffle it around, 
and distribute our money. Mm. So you're creating an internal job when the thing that is clear about Parks Victoria is there's not enough people on the ground. Look at the weed-infested Brimbank Park and the rabbits down there having a wonderful time multiplying, right? Go there any day of the week and you'll see rabbits bounding around full in full view. Scotch thistle. Parks Victoria don't even cut down a small box thorn when it comes through and cut and paste it. They let it grow to metres high and metres wide, right? So the contractors that you're paying, Helen, they're... Can, the Wurundjeri, yeah. They're... They, they're part of their own organisation or they're part of the Rangers? The Wurundjeri Rangers are part of the Wurundjeri um, Aboriginal Council, right? Mm. It's um, Now, they were formed by the council to create employment for Aboriginal people, right? Now, over the years they've gone mm. from four and they're expanding and they're now beginning to attract large contracts. Now... This is about closing the gap and creating work for mm. Aboriginal people, right? That's, that's one of the reasons we were interested in this project because when we were approached to do the project mm. by the CMA, they said it's a cultural heritage site and we went, oh, we're not going anywhere until we are told by Wurundjeri what we can and cannot do. And they said, well, we kind of got that covered for you. You can employ the NARAP team who were just beginning at that time. Mm. And so... Um, they have their own Facebook page, which I will send you the link. We'll add it to the podcast, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's a wonderful relationship. And, I mean, it was Uncle Dave's, I mean, we weren't allowed to burn the country so we could get rid of the weeds and, and help the, the seeds that are in the soil, which we refer to as a seed bank. We couldn't get the seed bank, bank germinated because we weren't allowed to fire the country so we had to use chemicals right okay. now you use it at quarter strength when you're in the vicinity of native plants nevertheless it's been they've said look the problem here is weeds we have pastoral weeds um, we need to shade them out so we've planted very close to shade it out so that the 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 weed grasses there can't thrive and the natives will eventually come through. So we overplanted on purpose mm. so we didn't have to use as much chemical. Now, this, this, this is what I mean. It's collaborative. Mm. Wurundjeri have mm. their insights and we follow their lead, right, and we pay on time. And they also contributed volunteer hours. And the, so this change, if, if, if your group had agreed to it, would have meant that there would be an intermediary between your group and the rangers um, that they'd have to then yes. in be go in between parks Victoria to get paid. Yeah. Mm, that seems extremely inefficient. Aboriginal people have put up with enough from us. They need a bit of respect. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, we're not doing it. So. Yeah, and Helen, on yes, Kev. On that, Helen, um, you, you, you get the grant and you pay the Wurundjeri group, the Wurundjeri company, I spoke, whatever it is, Wurundjeri um, Narak Rangers, Kev. Narak Rangers, yeah. and the the Parks Victoria, I assume, would they pass on the same money, or would they, in fact, then say start negotiating and saying we want to pay less or whatever? Can they? Would they start playing with it, or do we not know that or not? Well, there was a lack of clarity on that. I said, what's the administration fee? Because you're doing my work. I now have to do the same amount of work, send it to you, and then I have to check on you. <laughs> my treasurer said to me, 
I don't want to pay Parks Victoria. I can't see what they're doing. He said, I see the stakes and guards. I see the trees. I know the quality. And by gee, we know the superb quality of the Narrap Rangers, the Wurundjeri Narrap Rangers. We know the fantastic work they do. He said, I'm happy to pay out, pay out that public money that we're accountable for because I can see it. Mm, yeah. Because if it was, and, and I mean, the other disturbing fact, it was in the initial phone call I heard quite clearly and checked it, it's the new Park Act. I said, okay, send me a copy of the clause that has now changed the status that says we have to hand our money over that you're not entitled to ask for under the grant schemes to you. And uh, the next phone call was, no, it's just, it's just because we're the land manager. God. So nothing changed. So and nobody yeah. seems to want to negotiate. So we've just said, okay, guys, we're going off now. And on top of that, we have a federal grant to do a wetland on the other bank of the creek, and we're not going to be doing that either. And the Narap Rangers also got money from uh, Aboriginal Affairs Victoria to work on cultural heritage sites at Brimbank Park, and they have pulled their money because they don't want to be subjected to this process. And they're taking that money to work on the Keeler Skull site. So mm. it's friends of Maribyrnong that will no longer go and apply for grants to work on Parks Victoria land. They've been there for 12 years. Mm. We've been there for five. This was to be our sixth. NARAP are not going to work on their land either. So good luck with the co-funding. And besides that, it doesn't address the really big issue is why doesn't any Victorian government ever fund the parks properly? There's a burial mound in Brimbank Park which was rabbit infested and Sean had to go in and get money through a different process so he could put... Once again, Helen, just to, once again, who's Sean? Sean is the manager of, um, Sean Hunter is the manager of the Wurundjeri Narap Rangers. Excellent manager. Right, okay. So he's had to, he had to go in and get money to try and protect that. I mean, a burial site, rabbit and weed infested. That is the care Parks Victoria takes. Now, where's the minister in all of this? Why doesn't the minister know how neglected the west of Melbourne is in our parks. Why doesn't the minister know the horrible state of Aboriginal heritage in these parks? Why doesn't the minister take get better funding for Parks Victoria? Now, I'm sick of Parks Victoria feeling sorry for themselves. I understand the Liberals decimated them, took off 342 jobs in one day, and that was demoralising. I understand all of that. But at some stage, you have to pick yourself up and get going again. And it's not hard to get rid of Boxthorn when it's small. It is very hard and very expensive to get rid of it when it's three and a half metres high and about four metres wide. So come on, where's the minister's responsibility? And, and I, assume you've, I assume you've involved or tried to involve your local state members in this. Um, what have they said? Not yet. I think the media is a better source at the moment. Mm -hmm. I mean, Kevin, I, I will go to my local member who's been very supportive of it. I'm quite sure he's going to be, be shocked. But on top of that, we now have the EPA's review into EPA's regulation of chemical waste. And, of course, once that fire occurred, 
in 2018. We knew the EPA hadn't been managing, but the, the report has been, um, and no one was surprised by that because, after all, we know the community doesn't have any confidence in them. We had them. And, and not managing transporting and storing chemical waste goes back a long time in Victoria and no government has ever handled it properly. No government has, no environment minister has ever stood up and taken a real interest in it. The Coop, we had the 87 Butler Fire in Footscray. We had the 92 fires of Coot Island. As a consequence of those fires, we got, oh, if chemicals are going to be transported, we have to name them, transport them, get a permission slip from EPA, and it's got to go here, from here to there, and that's it. And it's the same in the landfill industry, and we know that it's not being scrutinised well in that area too. So anyhow... The astonishing thing in this report are the 22 recommendations um, with uh, 25 of the 38 actions have already been um, enacted by EPA and they did call for the inquiry themselves. So that was good. But the, the fascinating fact was 96,000 requests for transporting of chemical waste come to EPA every year, 96,000, come by paper. 72,000 a year come by electronic means. Why aren't they all on electronic means? Hmm. Right? Now, if you've got that many coming in in a year, I did a rough calculation. Uh, it's almost 500 a day if you're working 365 days a year. So how many people would you need to try and bring those two systems together and check? And guess what? When you ask to say, when you say I want to transport X chemical to such and such a facility, they don't even, and it comes from this facility, the statement does not even tell you, it doesn't even check it with the licence to see if that, that named premises is actually using that chemical. Mm. So you can write any cock and bull story on your slip. Mm. That, right? That's a huge amount of requests. It is gigantic. Mm. And the other thing is, how many times do we have failures in the EPA before an environment minister is, is held accountable? The current minister says, we've given them massive fan funding and now we're going to keep a close eye on them. Well, that was her job all along. Secondly, the massive amount of funding did not put more people on the ground. The massive amount of funding that she's talking about put more officers in to write the new act. And guess what the minister did recently under the omnibus bill? She said, oh, let's leave the EPA bill not to be implemented for another eight months. Now, the recommendations that EPA have not already introduced are the very ones that, according to this report, come in on July 1, 2020. That's now gone to November 2021. So polluters, go for your life because we've got the same um, emasculated EPA that we had before. The reason those laws were brought in was because the EPA didn't have enough power. It couldn't go into premises. It can't take, it can't open up things, right? They are so limited in their powers under the old Act. Why on earth would you let the old Act continue? I mean, where is the Minister for the Environment? Is she across her brief? We're talking about Lily D'Ambrosio, aren't we, the minister? Um, and and has she has she extended that time limit under pressure from the industry itself? I assume that's why it's been delayed. 
Well, that's what we heard, that the business needed more time to adjust. For heaven's sakes, EPA's been out there for the last 18 months telling everybody. And all through the chemical fire crisis and the community reference group meetings, we were told, look, our powers change on July 1, 2020, right? Now, the community rights part of that bill doesn't come in till July 1, 2021, when we can say, listen, this is totally inadequate. We're going to the magistrate's course and we can bring an action, right? Well, I hope that hasn't been put out. I hope that's still going to come in next year. Anyhow, well, it can't come in before the Act's in, can it? So it has to be postponed. I'm furious. Yeah. Any minister worth their weight would know what's going on in the department and wouldn't have to be standing up there saying the government is now going to keep a close eye on the EPA. It was always their job to do that. Yeah. I'm just frustrated that you can have a minister who doesn't know what Parks Victoria does is doing, doesn't understand the necessity, the critical need to get on with the EPA Act. And if you look at the forest issue, if you look at the Gungara community up in the highlands there, they took this Victorian government to court and got the you know, the local areas that are not burnt in the recent bushfires. They've got them protected by going to court. They stood up for Leadbeater's Possum and made sure there was a management plan for the states. I mean, the Leadbeater's Possum is our fauna emblem, right? It's an endangered species. They went to court and because there was no action plan. We've got a couple of hundred plants and animals that need action plans and I think the Department of Environment has only done less than half a dozen. They might have gotten a few more, but anyhow, mm. the point is they're a long way behind. So they don't know how to look after threatened species. They don't know how to look after habitat. They don't know how to look after parks, the, the public parks, and they don't know how to look after the EPA. So what's the minister doing? Huh? That's a really good question. Um, it's frustrating too, isn't it, Helen, that um, these uh, organisations are routinely underfunded. Like you say, they lose... Um, they lose their, their, their funding, they lose jobs. And then, of course, they're, it's very difficult for them to do a lot of the work that they used to be able to do. And when things go wrong, then the government says to them, it's well, look, it's, it's not our, exactly, it's not our fault that we should keep it closer on the EPA and Clark's Victoria should do a better job. And they really, it's very, very difficult. As someone who, myself, I've worked in community services for maybe 15 years now, it's very tough to work in those circumstances when you're constantly being underfunded and mm. you're constantly thinking about how you can get the next round of funding just to keep people employed. Um, projects are already, always like grant-oriented and so there's always a lot of uncertainty about how long they'll be able to last. Um, but it's, it's tough when the, the, there's people there like your group who really want to make a difference and have a lot of energy and time to give to these projects. and um, and, yeah, frustrating to see that Parks Victoria then turn around and instead of working with you, take an authoritative stance about, about grant money. Oh, they probably didn't get a choice in it anyhow. Mm. I mean, I have certain empathy. I mean, I worked in the school system. I know what it's like to yeah. be, you know, I, I can go and get all the professional development that I want and know how to do it. Yep. And yet if you put too many kids in my classroom, I can't live up to the standard I know that I should. And that's really right. frustrating. And you can never then 
bring along all the children to their full potential because there's just too many of them, right? Yeah. It's yeah. not that you don't know what to do and you don't. it's not that you don't want to know. And I've seen frustration yeah. in offices in both Parks Victoria and within EPA yeah. and I've seen an improvement yeah. in quality of some EPA offices. You know, the, there are some people still running around thinking they're God's gift to humanity when they're not. But anyhow, arrogance is a human trait, so you learn to live with it. But, you know, on the whole, you can see a lot of professionalism and a lot of ambition and you see it being hacked at. Mm, yeah, it's tough. And so with so this... I do, go on, Meg. With the Steel Creek um, project, are, are you looking at alternative sites and... Oh, I got them picked within a couple of weeks. And you're... But I kept negotiating with Parks Victoria. Yeah. Um, we, we are hoping we will do stream bank revegetation um, the other side of the road. Uh, Buckley Street's the divider between the Parks Vic land and Mooney Valley Council land. Now, Mooney Valley Council have two wonderful conservation offices. So we have now found quite a good area and um, the work for NARAP is still there and we will do stream bank revegetation and we are looking at doing a seasonal wetland. We have a permanent, a small permanent wetland on the west bank on Avondale Heights, on the Avondale Heights side of the creek and you go over the Buckley Street Road and there's another part further up on the west bank where there is a seasonal wetland, which will be good because it'll, if we can perhaps deepen it a little bit and put the right plants in, the water will pool there and the tadpoles will grow and we'll improve our frog population and then the, the um, neighbours won't have to worry in the summer because there won't be water there breeding, stagnant water breeding mosquitoes. It'll just be long enough for tadpoles to develop. And because of the pollution in our creek and because of the volume and the velocity of water that we get down the creek now because of urbanisation um, and expansion around the airport, um, we can't get tadpoles developing in reaches of our creek. Mm. Um, and the growling grass frog is probably about few kilometres away and they can travel three to five k's overnight. So we might be able to, if we can do this one well and prove the point, then it's our long-term vision to do more seasonal wetlands mm. or frog bogs right along the creek so that we can bring back our frog population. Nice. So the ambition is there to continue and yep. Valley Council is on the money, on the ball. Um, because. And mind you, they don't have enough of these people yeah. um, and they never put any, you know, we've been struggling on with two people. We had one. When we got one 12 years ago, it was a wonderful breakthrough and huge improvement because this Michelle Gooding, the officer, um, has such a reputation when she applies for a grant, she gets it because what she delivers is wonderful and Millie is wow. support Millicent Burke. So, you know, we're in good company there. We'd like to see Mooney Valley have more conservation officers, of course, so we could get on with more work. We'll share the details of the group on, online at 3cr.org.au slash limits, and also we'll pop it on the podcast. So if anyone's listening and wants to get involved and get some growling frogs back in the well, region. That, that might be a little while off. We'll just, we'll just go with the... Just trying to keep the population, after all, when we moved here 50 years ago, the chorus yeah. of frogs at night would keep mm. you awake. It was beautiful. <laughs> and now there's just a small band of them mm. and we don't want them to completely go. So we are hoping Melbourne Water will support our grant applications when we want to do more. So you'll get, you'll get the frogs and the Parks Victoria's ambition will croak it. <laughs> oh, Kevin, no. Yeah. 
That was just a bad joke. We're all very bad shaking joke. our heads here, Kevin. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Helen, can I just ask you before we um, back to the EPA? Just we just very quickly. You're late, Kev. We got to go. Oh, okay. Well, I just wanted to. I just can't believe that the EPA can't go into these places and inspect. That's what I find astonishing. Oh, the EPA has not had proper enforcement laws ever, right? They haven't got a policing arm. And we've said for a long time, separate the regulators and enforcers, right? Look, we could do a whole program on that. You've got another guest. So let's quit and we'll come back to that next time. Well, we won't. Yeah, we better go then. Okay, but that bit just fascinates me, that's all. Thank you, Helen. Okay, Helen, thanks a lot for coming on. Once again, um, thanks, Helen. Terrific. Oh, I love it. See ya. Bye. Okay, thanks. Helen Vandenberg. Okay, we've got our new other guest, Helen, um, me. Yeah, um, so our next guests are Spike Ciappelloni and Bridget Kelly, both from CoHealth, who've been working with some frontline responses to health and homelessness. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. If you're wrestling with feelings of anxiety, worry and depression or finding the current social isolation measures hard to deal with, we would like to encourage you to call Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are seeking information about mental health or mental health services or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. If you feel it would be helpful to talk to someone about these issues during this difficult period, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300-111-500. That's 1300-111-500. Wellways supports 3CR. Many of you will be familiar with 3CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser. It's when you, our listeners, literally keep the station going with your generous donations. It's a vibrant and busy time each June at the station and an all-in effort from our volunteers, staff and supporters. But in 2020, under the COVID-19 restrictions, we need to do things a little bit differently. So stay tuned for our June Station Appeal. It'll be online, on point, and be asking those of you who can to make a donation to keep 3CR alive. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. Welcome back to City Limits. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're joined by Bridget Kelly and Spike Ciappellone. Um, They're both working with CoHealth on the Rough Sleepers Harm Minimisation Project. Thank you to you both for joining us. Hi. Um, cool. Let's start with Bridget and if you could let us know a little bit about what this project is. No problems, yeah. So this project um, has been going for about 18 months. Um, and it was, um, it's been funded through the Lord Mayor's Charitable Trust. Um, it's a fund called the Pathways Innovation Fund that the City of Melbourne um, run. Um, and um, the, the aim of the project is to uh, 
use a co-design process um, so work with people with a lived experience of homelessness of rough sleeping specifically in the city mm. um, to look at ways uh, and create a resource uh, for um, that will have an impact on minimizing health legal and social harms that are caused by rough sleeping or exacerbated by rough sleeping mm. so um, co-health was successful in an application for this project and um, it has involved a couple of stages. So uh, Spike has come on as the peer worker and I came on as a project worker. Um, we did a huge amount of research and had some consultations with folks with a lived experience um, and also with uh, a range of services, homelessness services and authorities like police and, um, and some corporates about... Uh, what they saw as kind of happening um, for folks who were sleeping rough and what was sort of working, what wasn't working and what some solutions are to reduce harm. Um, we wrote a survey um, and interviewed 81 people with a lived experience of rough sleeping in the city. Um, so we did that over a number of months um, and it was a qualitative survey with some quantitative stuff in it. Um, but it was not a research kind of approach as such. It was more um, asking people what they thought, what, what their skills and strategies were in looking after themselves, what they saw as gaps that exist um, currently and what's available to people rough sleeping and what they think would be good ideas to, to change some things or to um, um, solve some problems. And then we put together a working group of 11 people and me and Spike ran workshops for about three months and um, used some co-design methods um, to look through all the findings from the surveys. Um, and then we came up with, after three months, uh, a suggestion to pilot to pilot a peer-to-peer -peer monthly um, booklet and website um, that's been created. We've just done... Um, our May one, and that's gone out. Um, but it's it's called uh, Need to Know, so what you need to survive the streets, and it's uh, it's got a peer lens. It's 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 peer to peer information, sharing skills, sharing strategies, and um, sharing information about things like basic needs and um, where to get showers, um, what your rights are, um, how to get legal help, um, where to get food. And oh, I think that's, yeah, and how to use services effectively and that kind of thing. So mm. that's what we're up to at the moment. It's a long answer, sorry, but it's kind of been involved. Right. And so, Spike, what's, uh, how did you get involved and, and how, what's your role like in a bit more detail? Okay, so I was employed as um, an allied health, a part-time allied health worker at Co-Health before the project started and, um, I thought when when the the role came up, I thought you know why why look initially I was really hesitant, but then because the, initially the emphasis before the before the um, the applica job applications went out, there was more of an emphasis on making people house ready mm. or making or um, housing ready rather than the sort of co-design, peer-to-peer sort of emphasis that was later put on it, uh, yeah, that, was, that, that it, it later became. 
So yeah, when when after speaking to to a couple of people, I thought it was a really good idea that someone you know to 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 support people with the lived experience in the project in the process of developing the resource. I mean the 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 um. The survey and and before that, just doing the reading that you know, just doing the um, looking through all this all the sort of existing um, information about rust mm-hmm. leafers and what and what stuff. What we found was is that there's a lot of statistics on what services rust leafers use, how often they use them, they know how many times they've been in and out of each and every service, but no, nothing about what their feelings were, what their how it felt to mm-hmm. be on the street. Um, what their tips were, what were their suggestions, how did they survive? Mm. And so I think it was a really good opportunity to get involved. Yeah. And do you feel like there's something um, you mentioned about like a, uh, initially the project was more about getting people ready to move into homes. Do you feel like there's something that's better or has a different focus about helping people, like working with what people already know about how to have better health and and access services better in the circumstances that they are in. Look, I, I think there's I think there's credence I think there's credence and there's 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 um it's a good idea. Yes, it, it respects people's situation where they are and it respects the skills that mm-hmm. they have, and it's also an opportunity for them to contribute to something and and them to realise that they're not alone. But I, I, and and look, the housing ready stuff is also important because the healthier the you are, the safer you feel, um, the the more able you are to look after yourself, the better position you're going to be in to make um, um, thoughtful decisions about your next step in life. It, when mm. the more the more chaotic your life is, the more difficult it is to to to, to um, make housing successful. Because you know, in this in this work, we find that people get housed, and sometimes they're they're out of their property within two or three months. Yeah, and and for a variety of reasons. If if this resource goes some way into addressing those issues before people actually get a property mm. and start thinking of themselves and looking after their health and, and and their safety and stuff like that, I think it's a really good thing. Mm. We've seen we've seen the people off the street and housed during the corona crisis. Melbourne City Council's played quite a role in this. But the worry is, and do you worry, either of you, uh, that when it's all over, they'll just put people back on the streets again? Bridget? I'm just having a think. Um, am I worried that they'll just be put back on the streets? Yeah. I mean, for sure. I think lots of... Lots of workers are worried about that. There's a lot going on, though, um, with services getting together to kind of um, support people who are being, you know, put into hotels and stuff at the moment um, through the work the council and and large homelessness services are doing. Um, Yeah, I I guess that that is a concern for sure that people would be put back on the streets. I'm not sure how that's going to work out really. Spock, what are your concerns? Uh, look, I think that's a major concern that people will be put that that will end up back on the street. But also, I think it's also important to point out that the people the people that have been accommodated were so. I mean, look, that's the fact is everyone has a right to housing. That's the bottom line. The city, the 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 
the, the state government has made some money available to house people during this corona stuff. And let's hope that, that, that the long-term housing comes out of this. But, you know, people, they, they, what we've learned from this survey and from this whole project is that people have amazing skills, strategies, and they're able to adapt in, in, in amazing ways. Um, and so I'm hoping um, that people get housing after this COVID thing. Um, I, I, you know, I just don't know. I can't guarantee, you know, I, I hope people get housing. But I also believe that people do have, you know, they will survive. I mean, they, they, we all deserve housing, but they have amazing skills. And so that's what this resource is about, sharing those skills with everyone. What's some of the things, Spike, that you've been, that you found like most interesting or most impressive about the, what you've learned so far about what, how people, the skills that people have? Um, the most impressive thing is that they haven't lost hope. Is that, the, you know, we, we, we spoke, we, we surveyed 81 people and, the, and people were still prepared. Every single person that I, um, that I surveyed during that time was happy to give their time, sometimes up to two hours. Mm. We did pay folks $60 for their contribution, but I don't think it would have made any difference, to tell you the truth. People were, were happy to contribute to something that they thought was going to help someone else, mm. and that was really inspirational. Mm. I think that's something that we, sh we should never forget. People were happy to... We, uh, we only had 12 um, um, positions in the working group. 61 people of the 81 people put their hands up to, to participate. So I think what that shows is that whatever, you know, whatever people may think, the, st you know, the stereotype, in, in, especially in the right-wing media, about who homeless people are and what their character is, I, I, you know, we can vouch that, that people who have had a, li uh, a lived experience of sleeping rough care about themselves and others and the community. And and I think this is, I think this resource goes some way into reintegrating people back into the mainstream communities. That makes, I think. Mm. And so the the resource is is available online, and it's also available in like hard paper format. Is it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it's a little A5, eight page booklet that opens up to a big um, back page with a map on it and some other stuff. And then it's got an insert, this, um, this edition's got an insert specifically on coronavirus, um, which was made by the group. So it's, it's also, got, a, it's also from, got advice from peers about, you know, specific things to do to look after yourself during this time. Um, it's got some really good um, alcohol and drug kind of uh, harm minimisation information. Um, so that's an extra thing that's in there for this mm. for this one, yeah. So it's a it's really low-fi. It's 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 just printed on um, just A3 general like paper, so like ADGSM paper, so the usual stuff. Um, uh, so it is kind of something that's really can be sustainable. So mm. um, be done by you know social workers and peer workers and folks with who aren't particularly you know skilled up as designers and printers and stuff like that so it can stay mm. in that zone mm. and how many how many have been distributed that you know of or, uh, yeah. about 450 mm. 
Yeah. We've had over the weekend, we saw the Property Council of Australia, the Housing Industry Association, the Master Builders Association, all the usual suspects. Mm-hmm. They're calling out for, for a $50,000 new home buyer grant uh, here in Victoria from money put up by the state government last week mm-hmm. to kickstart the house building industry. But surely if all that money went into, and you still have the same number of jobs, if it went into providing public housing, we'd start to solve many of the problems we're talking about about, wouldn't we? Again, to either of you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. At the same time, I mean, we, we can, I mean, something like this, this kind of resource is something that can kind of outlive even, um, even if we did build the amount of public housing that's necessary, because there's always going to be some kid, you know, leaving their house for whatever's happening and maybe shorter terms, shorter periods of um, of rough sleeping, you know, and something like this resource can still help folks no matter, you know, whether we kind of had a proper amount of housing built and, you know, the actual answer done, which is to build affordable housing and that kind of thing. But there's still going to be inequities which will lead people to homelessness, not at, hopefully not at the same rates that we've had the last, what, four or five years when it's increased by 70% mm. um, in the city, which you guys would know about. But, um yeah, I think there will always be a place for this type of um, publication because of because of the, because of the way that's written as well. You know, it's 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 written in this kind conversational tone with this kind of narrative of like it's not your fault if you do this and this little this will get you on your feet a bit more, mate. You know, stick with it. Get find out. Get some help from Justice Connect with your with your fine, so it's not kind of lingering there when you move in to your house when you finally get it. So we can see this yeah. type of publication being useful if there's more public housing or not really yeah yeah can i just can i just add to that that i think that the public housing that as an option is a is fantastic because it's the most affordable um and 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 yeah it's the most of 25 percent of your income it's one of the most affordable and the most affordable and probably most successful options for people that have been homeless but the importance of this resource as as bridget's pointed out there's there's some people who've experienced trauma and, and different types of challenges. Sometimes it takes time for that housing option to work mm. for them. Mm. And so, you know, why not people that have that are homeless, why, why not them have um, access to information that's produced by them for them? Mm. You know, if people that are housed, middle-class folks, they have media that's produced by them for them. Why not people that are homeless? About it's giving them something that they can um, contribute to, um, and, and, and reminds them that they're not alone. It's not their fault. It's a systemic issue, and I think that yeah. Um, and 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 look, we've there, there's I you know we're encouraging in the resource we're encouraging people to speak to their workers about putting public housing applications in. Mm. Some people that use services don't even know that they do public housing applications. Mm. So that's something yeah. we can share. Make sure that when you see a social worker, you demand to have the public housing application. So, you know, there's tips about how to use services. You know, we found that 50% of the people we surveyed didn't have a public housing application. Mm. Some of them had slept rough for over 10 years. So this is really, this fills a real gap. Yep. And I think it's really important that, you know, everyone be given access to information. Mm. And that's where your group comes in and is so, so damn important, obviously, to provide people with those sort of facilities. Yeah. Yep. Yes, definitely. 
so we've got we've just got a couple of minutes left unfortunately we're going to have to start winding up but um perhaps you could let us know about what's happening next for the project how long it might be going and um we'll put some links up on the website at 3cr.org.au slash city limits and we'll also include it in the podcast blurb so great yeah what can you tell us about what's happening next well what's happening next is some tentative tentative plans to put together a june edition um and we're waiting on we've we've got a few kind of ongoing funding options in the pipelines that we're trying to work out to try and extend it. Um, but we're just we're just going for another few months at this stage and then hopefully mm. get funding to keep going. So, um, but the working group, so there's eight of the 11 um, are still heavily involved and we've been, obviously we can't catch up as a group, but we've been meeting one-on-one and, and um, over the phone and via text and via email. So there's a lot of momentum in the group and the group had involved in lots of different parts of this project. So they've had other paid roles outside of the editing the um, editing the publication. But yeah, looking, hopefully you guys will see a June edition and um, if there's any people listening that are kind of interested in this type of work and would want to volunteer at some point, um, we've got a contact number which you can put up on the website. It's just need to know at cohealth.org.au. Um, but, yeah, there might be some opportunities down the track for volunteers, for designers and writers and people who are, you know, good with um, techie stuff and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. Great. Excellent. Thank you so much to both of you. Um, that's Spike Chapalone and Bridget Kelly from CoHealth Rough Sleeping Harm Minimization Project, and we'll have all the links in the podcast and up online. Yeah, and, and good luck with it all. Okay. Cheers. Thank you very much. Good on you, good on you, Megan. Thanks. Well, there we are, team. Okay, and that's uh, that's city limits for another week. And uh, next week's transport, of course, we're back to the back. To, we go into next month. It must be June next month. Must next week, mustn't it? And um, we'll have John. Happen quickly. That's right. But we'll have this halfway through the year almost. But we'll have uh, John McPherson on talking transport, and uh, and let's all thank uh, all Meg. Do the usual. Thank Karina for doing a great job and say goodbye. Well, thank you so much, Karina. And um, wonderful to have had Helen and Spike and Bridget on the show today. Really interesting. Mm, excellent. Join us all next week for Transport News. Okay. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.